Hello, Joel here. I've got a new book out. It's called Be Funny or Die. How comedy works and why it matters. And it's about how comedy works and why it matters. Why human beings tell jokes and then what that tells us about being human beings. So if you're a human being and you enjoy laughing and then want to know what the hell's going on with that, it's probably a pretty good book to read. It's called Be Funny or Die. It's in shops. You can buy it. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Cheese and Pickle. Hello, this is Comfort Blanket and I'm Joel Morris. I'm going to be talking to someone who makes cool stuff that I like. I'm going to talk to them about some warm stuff that they like. A book or a TV show or a record or a film that they find comforting and they return to again and again whenever they need to feel better. Um, we'll have a natter about it and see if we can work out just what is so magical about it and what makes them want to keep going back to it. This time I'm talking to the actor Yusuf Kakur. Yusuf is probably best known for playing the Syrian refugee Sami in the comedy series Home. He was nominated for a BAFTA for that. But he turns up all over the place, no longer just playing terrorists with a big beard. Uh, he was recently, I saw him in House of Gucci, holding his own against people at like Al Pacino. So it's incredible. But Yusuf has chosen for his comfort blanket the film Die Hard. Oh, God. Uh. Roy. Roy, are you all right? Just trying to fire then a thousand-year-old Twinkie. What do they put in these things anyway? Sugar-enriched flour, partially hydrogenated vegetable oil, polysorbate 60, and yellow dye number five. Just everything a growing boy needs. Right, we're going to talk about the greatest Christmas action movie of all time, Die Hard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So when did you first see Die Hard? Is this something you saw at the cinema or uh, on TV? Oh, so I think, because I was raised in Morocco, I saw Die Hard on pi- on like bootleg videotape. <laughs> was it one of those pirates that had been taken by someone in the cinema? In the cinema, yeah, 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 yeah. Which I, I must admit, the ones we used to get were pretty, I, I never knew that that's what it was. I just knew that they had the weird, like, the 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 audio was like, a little bit around the edges. But like... Uh, but that was it. That's because they were they were filming in the cinema, yeah, somewhere in the middle, <laughs> Middle East. It must have been. But um, so that's where I first saw it, and it was a tape that just went round and round and round. And and then when Die Hard Two came out, that was like everyone was talking about it. Everyone was watching it. We had big watch parties and stuff. But Die Hard One, I've come back to again and again and again because it is for me the perfect action. They're using artillery on us. Idiot. It's not the police. It's him. It fulfills all your demands. It fulfills all the demands. And it's like, I th- maybe it's my age at this point, but I think the entertainment value of a piece of art like that, it's so important that the thing entertains you. Yeah. And John McTiernan, who directed it, I still maintain, despite all his like legal trouble, I still maintain his one of the most entertaining filmmakers. His movies are ones that I can watch and just be, I just have a great time from beginning to end. And he's made, along with Die Hard, which is the other thing I nearly picked, which is 13th Warrior, which is one of my <laughs> favourite movies. And Die Hard and 13th Warrior, I think are right up there. Now send a police Sir, I've already ASAP. told you, this is a reserve channel. If this is an emergency call, dial 911 on your telephone. Otherwise, I'll have to report this as an FCC violation. Fine. Report me. Come the fuck down here and arrest me. Just send the police now. So you're talking about here with someone who understands a contract with the audience. That they said yeah, their job is it, just to entertain. Because he's in this with this is this is John McTiernan and Joel Silver, who's like your king of action producers. Yeah. And there's a feeling with them that they know almost in their gut what an audience wants to see yeah. and are then prepared to give it to you. Yeah. Because there's a quote that Joel Silver said. 
when he first saw the screenplay for this, he said, oh, no, it needs, needs fixing. And he said, oh, what does it need fixing? Character, building's going to blow up. Yeah. <laughs> and someone who understands at that level, the, the, the writers failed because there wasn't a huge explosion at yeah. the end. Blow the roof. The car's up there. Blow the roof. Yeah. He knows you want to see the building blow. Yeah. I mean, what's interesting <laughs> is because it, it was based on a book. Yes. And when you see the differences between the book and the movie, you know, spoiler alert here, sorry, but, um, you know, the, the bit at the end where Hans falls out the window, that was meant to be, in the book, that's the protagonist's, who's, got, who's not called John McClane, he's called something, something else. Leland or something. Something like that, yeah, some weird, it's a very, very narratively strong name. <laughs> I think it's his daughter. Yes, it's his like, drug addict daughter. Daughter, who gets pulled out of the window with, with the bad guy pulls her out. It's and, a very 70s, it's much yeah. more of a 70s thriller. Yeah. The feeling of it. Because it, it was it'd been hanging around for ages. The, the story, I think, was that it's the sequel. There was a book and a film called The Detective with Frank Sinatra in it. Roderick Thorpe's number one bestseller, a literary guild selection. Now, an adult powerhouse on the screen. And the guy who wrote that was asked to write a sequel back, way back in yeah. the 70s. Your Joe Leland detective, prowling a city sick with violence, full of junkies, prostitutes, and perverts. Right sequel, and he, he said, oh, terrorists in a big building, sort of around Bardemine, yeah. off time, yeah, that yeah, feels, yeah. feels right. And writes this thing called Nothing Lasts Nothing Forever. Nothing Lasts Forever, that's it. And it ends in a classic sort of 70s, grim, yeah. downbeat, yeah. you can imagine like Chinatown, that's kind right. of downbeat ending. That's right, goes around, kills everyone in the building. Yeah, and it's miserable, and he's quite old, yeah. he's 60-something, and this was going to be the follow-up for Sinatra. Yeah. The detective gives full play to Sinatra's fabulous talents in what has to be one of the year's most dynamic roles. And then Sinatra went off Couldn't and did my it. way yeah, of doing it. Right, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so it sits on a shelf for ages as a property that's owned by uh, the studio. That's it. So this, this property's been sitting on the shelf for ages and they get in a guy called Jeb Stewart to write a screenplay based on it, but as a vehicle for a sort of modern that's action right. star. But contractually, they have to give it to Frank Sinatra. Sinatra. Yeah, he's like, what? <laughs> he's <not> 70. <laughs> and of course, naturally, just turns it down. That's right. And then it goes to everybody else. It goes yeah, to yeah. Clint Eastwood, everyone. Yeah. And like it trickles down. Yeah, everyone's offered Richard Gere would have been, I mean, that would have been, that's the one choice where I thought, <laughs> yes, in the 80s Richard Gere, late 80s Richard Gere, yeah. doing that kind of movie. I mean, he didn't do it because that's not who he, that's yeah. his brand. But if he did do it, that was the one choice that I thought, that could have been... Yeah. Really interesting. I got nowhere else to go! I suppose that's the process you're watching when you're watching this film. Now, Die Hard is a thing that everyone knows. Yeah. You forget there was a time when Die Hard wasn't Die Hard. It wasn't Die Hard, yes, exactly. When it could have been someone else. It could have been a different sort of movie. It could have been a, an Arnie-style movie or a Clint Eastwood-style movie or a Richard Gere-style movie. That's right. The inevitability of it being a Bruce Willis movie, which now says, well, who else would it yeah, be? Yeah. That was nowhere near. Yeah. Certain. You listen to me, you little asshole. I'm a- asshole. I'm not the one who just got butt fucked on national TV, Dwayne. And I think maybe that's what makes it unique and interesting. Why it was a watershed yeah. in action movies. This is why I love it so much because I place so much value on what the producers and McTiernan have done in yeah. shaping and creating it purely for your pleasure. Watching yes. It. If you watch Moonlighting, you can't. Really see John McClane there? Yeah. Name, please. David Addison. Madeline Hayes. I'm sorry, but you're not on the guest list. That's because we're not guests. We're looking for a man with a mole on his nose. Mole on his nose? A mole on his nose. What kind of clothes? What kind of clothes? What kind of clothes do you suppose? What kind of clothes do I suppose would be worn by a man with a mole on his nose? Who knows? Did I happen to mention that I bothered to disclose this man that we're seeking with a mole on his nose? I'm not sure of his clothes or anything else, except he's Chinese. A big clue by itself. How do you do that? You gotta read a lot of Dr. Seuss. But if, if you have that ability to put the puzzle pieces together yeah you can totally see it. you think if this guy was actually a, a badass killer <laughs> how do you know he's dead it's either that or the man wears an obscene amount of blue rouge but really sensitive as well and yeah. really who, who not who didn't mind being an action hero with emotion i'm sorry i'm really sorry unlike the robotic, uh, I must destroy you. It's not sly. You know, he's not a sly. He's not sly. He's not. He's not Schwarzenegger. Fuck you, asshole. Because the original pitch was Rambo in a building. That's right. That yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's not Rambo yeah, in a no. building. That's what makes no, it. That's what Bruce Willis brought to it, and that's that's you got to be somebody that watches things like Moonlighting. And they'd done movies, but they hadn't been massive no. hits. So it's a big risk pulling. it. Yeah. And the, the rule used to be, you can't bring a TV star into Hollywood that's and then right. make them a film star. Yeah. And, and apart from maybe a couple of SNL guys had yeah, done it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it wasn't a thing that necessarily happened. And 
what you're talking about is the vision of the people making it to that's see it. something that seems impossible. Yeah. A Bruce Willis action movie. That's impossible. Yeah. And also to go, who's the bad guy? Oh, the stage yeah, actor exactly. from Les- <laughs> The same thing again. This guy from Les Andageros will be an amazing terrorist. That's true. She has resisted me for more than two months now, and that's very nearly a record, but I really don't want to hurry things. Like, it's, it's need somebody, you know, you need to have a real, you need to be a consumer. Yes. In order to make those choices. You need to be a consumer in order to say, Hans Gruber pulling uh, the daughter and killing her at the end is not right. We need a feel-good feeling thing to wrap up the bow nicely in this type of movie. We need the comedy here. We need, we need the little pockets of things. I mean, there's all this stuff that conspires to make everybody that's involved with it think in the same way. Yeah. You know? I'm going to count to three. There will not be a four. The thing that I never knew is that they rewrote on the fly a lot. They, the rewrites yeah. were insane. I mean, apparently they started shooting with 35 pages of script. I was used to working at a very rapid pace. I knew I was going to hit the ground running. I knew I was going to be writing ahead of the cameras. As in, they've got 35 pages of script. They know it's in a building. And they know the action, so let's just shoot the action around it. And then it all starts to go And it's being control. delivered almost a page at a time. That's right, yeah. And this is a situation. Jeb Stewart had written the, 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 the screenplay, and it had been given to Stephen D'Souza. Yeah. Because they wanted to put more humour into it. And he'd yeah. done uh, a load of sort of 48 hours, I think. And Yeah. He, but, Again, same type of movie. Yeah. Bloody entertaining. Comedy and, and, and action and blended. Action. Yeah. And they want this blend. And what they're doing, they're writing it fast and instinctively. They haven't got time to think. They've kind of got time to feel what would be fun. Yeah. Hey, Lincoln 30 to dispatch. 830, go ahead. Yeah, that's a wild goose chase over here at Nakatomi Plaza. Everything here is okay. Over. But nobody has let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. I talked to Rufus Jones about Raiders of the Lost Ark and the things yeah. you forget about that is it's made really quickly. Yeah. There's not time to think and every sequel they make is more overthought. Yeah. And what you want is the energy of people thinking on the fly. That's right. And just going, what would be entertaining? Talking about it as the original novel being far more downbeat in seventies, this is almost the opposite of auteur cinema. This isn't what the director yeah. wants to make; it's what the director thinks the audience want to see. That's right, yeah. And it's much more of a a circus, much more of a give, put on a show. Yeah, but I, I also think something needs to be said about their ability. So if they're writing on the fly and they're going quickly, what they do do when it's quick is yeah. actually worthy of. Really laboured, well <laughs> yeah. thought out, six months prep type of writing today. And I, the story I always yeah. say to everybody about Die Hard is, okay, you want to write your screenplay. And you, have, you, know, you have all these things that you're thinking about. Look at Die Hard. Within yeah. the first 10 minutes, you know everything about the character. Everything. Yes. He's on the plane. Some guy uh, sees his sort of tense. You don't like flying, do you? What gives you that idea? Gives him a tip about relaxing so you know what kind of yeah. personality he has. You want to know the secret to surviving air travel? After you get where you're going, take off your shoes and your socks. Then you walk around on the rug barefoot and make fists with your toes. He gets up and he's got a gun. It's okay, I'm a cop. Uh, so you know he's a police officer. Trust me, I've been doing this for 11 years. And you know he's in L.A., so he's out of his jurisdiction. The, the limo is there. Hey, I'm John McClane. Our guy. I'm your limo driver. Yeah. He sits in the front seat, so you know exactly what kind of person he he's is. He's not a back seat. He's not, he's a back not seat. used to being treated well. Exactly. He's, he's a blue collar. A blue collar dude. Blue collar, no nonsense dude. Yeah. It's my first time driving a limo. Uh, it's okay. It's my first time riding in one. He's got a real, a sort of real immediate rapport with the working man. Relax. We got everything in this mug, man. He gets to the building, types in his wife's name. I'm here to see Holly McLean. Just type it in there. She's not there. Retypes a name, and it's a different name. And that there she is. So now you know what their relationship is. Brilliant. Um, you know, she's using her maiden name. That's logged in. He gets there, meets everybody. Immediate disconnect between his world and her world and the people there. It's a Rolex. Is there a place where I could wash up? 
takes off his shoes to follow the guy's advice, thus setting up the, the, the whole the whole movie. I think the titles are still on the screen the by this point. Is still on the screen. They've wait. They have com- they have done everything they need to do, which today takes. 45 minutes. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And it's, it's all done. To the bone. It's like, it's paired to the bone and it's, it's done instinctively and it's done like, this is how we know who this person is, but it, they don't just give a bit of information. They give you all the information in a very short amount of time. It's a, it's a generous way Super of doing it. Super generous. Yeah. It says to the audience, we know you're watching and we're paying attention. There's a thing when you're, when you're making movies that the audience stop taking in new information after about 10, 15 minutes. Yeah. Anything you tell them after that, they're full. Yeah. They're what they want is more story. And it's a real struggle whenever you're, you're structuring a screenplay to put all the information the audience need in the beginning because yeah. they're ready to receive and the, the, the gate is open for about yeah. 10 minutes. Watch something like Die Hard where it's been edited really well and written really well. And again, as you say, instinctively, there's no room for any information that isn't important Yeah, because they've not got time to film that. Yeah. It's done really fast. And, and there is a tactile element to the edit. Like yeah. McTiernan uses lens flare a lot. Uh, sort of like yeah. a light flaring across the screen, but he put sound effects into it when you watch Die Hard, and you don't—you're not aware that it's happening. But he's actually included a little, a little sing, a little, a little noise when the lens flare appears. Wow! So you're so it's completely visceral and like luxurious as you're watching it. You know, and like yeah. the and if you think about the soundtrack and the music, it's all. Like really, like low. It's um, how trailers are made it really now. It's not how trailers are made now, and it's part of the whole movie. You <laughs> e- know, every single yeah. camera movement is that Edgar Wright. Exactly. Yeah. I suppose that's a pop video habit. It's very MTV, very, yeah, very maybe of its time. But oddly, I don't think you read that anymore because Die Hard set a standard. You went, uh, yeah, in fact, totally. If, if it isn't there in films now, you go, where's the where's the shing? Exactly. The, the, the yeah. lens flare. Where's exactly, the noise? Yeah. It's to that what Hans uh, Zimmer's. Trailer sounds yeah. has become <laughs> the, honk. You know, the honk, yeah, yeah, which is like you know, which you get everywhere. Without so. it, you miss it. Or the shepherd tone, yeah, that guy has a trailer. Yeah, you know, it's what you want as a car driving into a metropolis with that <laughs> in the background, and then like it sets are. the standard. Exactly. It's, I suppose yeah. what it says is that you will be relentlessly entertained, and it's part of. There's that wave of '80s blockbusters that set a new standard. That they go, well, the cinema mm. is now massively entertaining, and that's Zemeckis and Spielberg and everyone. Yeah. Like this huge tentpole blockbusters, and they use loads of tricks, and they're very over the top. But strangely, with Die Hard, because of the way it's shot on the fly, very quickly, very improvisationally, it feels very loose. It doesn't feel like one of those perfectly crafted, artificial. It feels real. Yeah. It feels authentic. You feel for the guy. The dialogue's real. It feels loose and improvised. Yeah. Obviously, every actor says they improvise all their lines on this. and all the I script, know, yeah, All yeah. the script writers go, but that was in the first draft. <laughs> you, what you've done is you remembered That's something right. from an earlier That's draft, right. yeah, but, yeah. but it does feel like they're making stuff up. A lot, of, a lot of the lines that we now know, like, Come out to the coast, we'll get together, have a few laughs. Or was he fed? I think he was fed that on the fly. There's, there's. I've read two different accounts. One of which are the actors who made it up, and one of the scriptwriters went, "That was in an early draft." But whatever happens, right. you've assembled right. the bits we've done in reads, the stuff we've worked out. They've intelligently been reactive. You can break the code. You didn't bring me along for my charming personality, though you could have. And on the set, if you're throwing in a line that's from a previous draft. You might as well be improvising because yeah, yeah, yeah. no one expects yeah. it. It gives it a freshness. And if it works, I know so many directors, it, on a set where you need to be extremely strict with the script, will assume that any improvisation is coming from somewhere genuine because the <laughs> rules are you're not allowed to improvise. Yes. So when there is an improv, they feel they've captured a real moment. Wow. Oh, no, you stupid Frankfurters, you. And I think... I think with experience as an actor, you start to pick that out. You learn when to fake an improv. You, you know when to fake when when to fake is this quote unquote genuine moment. So you think you, you can throw something in that works for you, and if it sounds good, yeah. the director will just think, "Well, that's that's come from somewhere real because but it he's not it, supposed to improvise." But it gives it a liveliness. It yeah. keeps the, the I suppose it keeps the set alive. It stops it going dead. Yeah. <laughs> that's Paris in spring. I think Welcome to the Party, Pal, is, is, yeah. is uh, an improv, an improvised line. And, and he can do that. He's he's come from that background. He's a smart-arsed... That's right, yeah. His, his background, he's a smart Alec bartender. That's where he got picked up for Moonlighting. <laughs> I've got a great fact. I, I dug this up this morning. I couldn't oh, believe nice. it. He was a bartender in a bar owned by Julie Hegarty 
from Airplane, the stewardess oh, from Airplane. Wow. Oh my God, the automatic pilot, it's deflating. It was her bar. She owned it, but she used to be a model. She had some money. She started the bar and employed lots of out-of-work actors, one of whom was Bruce Willis. He was the wisecracking bartender and the casting person for Moonlighting picked him up in Julie Hegarty's bar. How oh cool is that? God. This woman has to be gotten to a hospital. A hospital? What is it? It's a big building with patients, but that's not important right now. Um, there's your connection between two great entertaining movies. And the line, Christ, Paul, he could be a freaking bartender for all we know. Exactly. <laughs> it's oh, it's full it. of those. There's lots of love really it. good, all that, that smart arseness comes from him being that kind of a guy. Yeah. And it feels intrinsic. And he got criticised a lot when it came out. It got lukewarm reviews. Some people liked bits of it, some didn't. And it, it, it became a loved thing. Like, like, all the best, like all the best things. Yeah, they earned yeah. its love. Yeah. But one of the things the critics didn't like at the beginning was his wisecracking style. And you know, but you've hired him for that. He's there to, to deliver the comedy. And there are loads of action stars who would have fumbled all the comedy. Oh, yeah. Your luggage. I think that's also why there's a nostalgic element to my love for Die Hard, because it was before things got totally funk-used. <laughs> um, like, it is a national scandal in this country that you should be able to tell what the plot twist is going to be by who the casting directors have hired. Really? In, in England, absolutely. You know who the killer is because of who they've hired. They've hired the person that it always ends up becoming the killer. And there's a, there's a total disconnect between what the, audience is, what the audience is experiencing and, quote unquote, doing your job as a casting director, as a director, whatever. It's a real shame. And You're back- saying that the, 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 the audience are cleverer, they can see it coming. I th- I, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe it's p- only people in the industry, but I always know what's going to happen based on who's been cast. Really? That's just a little bugbear of mine. But I do, <laughs> I, it, you know, it is something that you can see a lot. Um, you shouldn't be able to say this person is going to have something to do with it, especially when casting directors do things like cast relatively fresh faces and then throw in there one really <laughs> yeah. uh, highly paid, uh, iconic actor. And so... You know that that actor isn't going to just be in the scene for in the half a page yeah. and go away. You know they're going to be more prevalent, and then and they get introduced as a sort of nothing character. Was there, so- one, was there, there were a couple of Bond films ago where Andrew Scott was cast as someone who was just working in the ministry? <laughs> you went, right. he won't yeah. just be working exactly. in the ministry. Exactly, Andrew Scott. Exactly what I'm talking <laughs> Moriarty about. Moriarty you know? in the background exactly. doing some typing. Exactly. Well, it's a pleasure to finally meet you, 007. I've heard a lot about you. And I think, and I think, as somebody who plays these on paper or they used to be on paper two-dimensional one-dimensional two-dimensional characters uh these ter- quote-unquote terrorists or bad guys <laughs> this movie is filled with those types of people and they all they all bring something super unique yes. to the movie drop it dickhead it's the police you won't hurt me oh, yeah why not because you're a policeman there are rules for policemen. Yeah, Alan Rickman himself. Benefits of a classical education. Total unknown. You know, he, yeah. people wouldn't, didn't know who he was. They didn't know who any of these guys were. No one kills him but me. And they all, they all earn their place in cinema history by what they do. Good evening, officer. What can I do for you? As supposedly secondary henchmen and heavies, you know? Al Leong, who plays one of the uh, 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 terrorists there, who was in Bill and Ted's, um, him taking the Hershey's bar, his little sweet thing, that was his improv. Yeah. And that was, and this is, what, this is the sort of thing I just love about this. He asked permission. Oh. He went up and he said, I'd like to do this on this. He did, he did a couple takes w- without it. And then he just asked if he could add this element to his character. That's which, a perfect demonstration of, of what, again, as an as a audience member, you're watching it and um, Stephen D'Souza said this about when he started doing the rewrites and he said I realised what I was writing was a film about an amazingly interesting uh, bank robber yeah. Alan Rickman and his friends there's a real temptation when you're writing a thriller to be obsessed by what the hero wants the hero's journey or that classic writing but your antagonist needs to want something as well even if it's a shark it needs to want something and an audience watches it and wants to know what everyone wants in a really basic way, Al Leong taking the chocolate bar tells you what he wants. You're watching everybody yeah. move around. They've all got desires. They've all got interesting stories. And yeah. Die Hard is a brilliant film for the lead guy, our hero, wants something simple. And we've set that up in the first 10 minutes. It's beautifully done. But then you start to find out what the bad guys want. And then when you start bringing in the FBI guys and the policemen, everyone's got a lovely little story where they want something. It's really clear. 
and you get to see it play out. And by the end of it, you've had a rewarding story where everyone's got their everyone's own story. Everyone's got their thing, yeah. And I think, I think what, I, what I appreciate about it so much is with my writer's hats on, I don't want the cab driver, when you get into the, to the taxi and you say, you know, take me to the Sheraton Hotel, you don't want the cab driver to go, ah, oh, Sheraton Hotel. I remember back I, in the day. I remember back in the day. That takes me back. And then, and then he drops you off and then he disappears and you never hear from him again. Yeah. Like, that's, that is not his job in yeah. the freaking movie. The ability to give a tertiary character or a secondary character a third dimension without it pulling the story yes. in a particular direction is bloody hard to do. And I... I don't think you can achieve it without the actor bringing that extra step, yes. which is why I love the example of Al Young asking permission to grab the sweet because he knows that's all he has to do to tell the audience a whole, a whole <laughs> sort of mountain worth of information that they can then create yeah, about you, his character. You know he's done this before. He's, so he's relaxed before, enough. He's relaxed enough. He's hungry. also hungry. He's got a sweet tooth. He's doesn't look American, so he grabs a Hershey's bar. <laughs> yeah. Like, there's so many levels there, and that's the actor just instinctively going, this is what I need to do in this moment to make this as rich as possible. But you're right. What would be distracting at that point? If his other job there is to defend the front gate against the police coming in or whatever, his primary job is to tell you he's defending the front gate. That's it. And if taking the Hershey's bar makes you think that's his primary job, He's wrecked the that's film. That's right. If he takes his Hershey's bar, looks at it, and a tear comes down, rolls down his cheek. Now we're watching that now story Now instead. that's a different freaking line, you know? We need to watch him do exactly. his primary job yeah. while distracted. Yeah, it's really delicate. And that comes in the edit and the performance and the screenplay yeah. and the director. Everyone is doing what they need to do to keep you entertained and to not make anything boring. Yeah. But you're not overwhelming you with detail. Yeah. Which is why it still feels lean, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, because I, 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 a lot, throughout my whole career people have been asking me who you're who are the act who your favorite actors yeah, yeah. who are the actors you like and i've always had these actors who play these types of roles that's always been my answer you know robert morse yeah. you know, clive russell who i ended up working with who worked with john mctiernan on 13th warrior and that's the first thing i said to him i said you know you're one of my <laughs> you're one of my favorite actors and i've always I've followed your career so much he went oh thank you very much and i said you know and 13th warrior and he went you know what so many people come up to me about that today was a Good day. A good day. The, the original novel and the original screenplay treatment is a bunch of terrorists take over That's a right. building. It's very Bart and Meinhof. Yeah. And McTiernan said, I don't want to do terrorists. They're too gloomy. Audiences don't like them because they've got, I suppose they've got political motives. It's yeah. complicated. It's nuanced. He went, can't they just be robbers? robbers Everyone loves robbers. robbers. Are we on schedule? One more to go. Then it's up to you. And you better be right because it looks like this last one's going to take a miracle. It's Christmas, Theo. It's the time of miracles. So be of good cheer and call me when you hit the last lock. They are, on the surface, terrorists. Everyone That's thinks right. they're terrorists. Yeah. The following people are to be released from their captors. In Northern Ireland, the seven members of the new Provo Front. But you can play a level of surprise with that by casting them to look like a bunch of terrorists. Yeah. I read about them in Time magazine. Then dressing them in Armani, yeah. these amazing yeah, yeah, suits. Yeah. Nice suit. John Phillips. London. I have two myself. And then it's a more Reservoir Dogs. They're a yeah. cool gang. Rumour has it, Arafat buys his there. And then also casting types who go, oh, Boris Goodenough is a ballet dancer. Yes, I know. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's just the it's, maddest it, people. You know. So you don't know what to expect from them. So the yeah. casting is incredibly brave from the lead backwards yeah. to not let you know what's going to happen next. Yeah. And they're all sort of Euro types. There's only two American terrorists, aren't there? Yeah. There's Theo and, uh, <laughs> yeah. and the guy who sits on the... the, the reception at the front. Yeah. All the rest of them have got a lovely mixture of middle European accents. That's right, yeah. And so, oh, German. Yeah. And we love a German that's right, yeah, that's right, yeah. And it all kind of comes back into play in the other diehards as well, yeah. which is great. And, and again, once again, leading back to when you narrow it down, you're, you're narrowing it down to the skill set involved from the director to the writer to the actors. The skill set is just so high for what the movie was supposed to be. Yeah. Um, you know, it was Rick, I think the Armani suit. Rickman wanted that. Oh, right. Yeah, he didn't want to be in fatigues like everybody, which he, which he yeah. was originally meant to be in. He's meant to be just a battle, battle-hearted dude. For there were no more worlds to conquer. You know, and he didn't like guns as well. He flinched a lot, apparently, during Apparently, the- his, his, his grip, he had a limp wrist, which <laughs> yeah. I think is just them being rude about an English yeah, guy. Yeah, going, yeah. But they had to train him to hold the gun yeah. steady. And they cut away from him when he, every time he oh. shoots. 
And every time there's a gunshot next to him, <laughs> and you can see it on the shoot the glass scene. That she's the yeah. Pincer. He 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 flinches badly. He just the the blanks. But that's so, good character. It's great. Can you uh, imagine the film where they all walk in their fatigues and they are basically a terrorist? Uh, I mean, it's, you know, I don't. I, I, I can imagine it. McTiernan's right. I don't want to watch no, that. No, no, exactly. Nobody would go. This is what the audience. This is what you at home on your cat on on your settee with a cup of tea watching this on a, on a Friday night because you're not going out. This is what will keep you gripped and happy. Is an instinct for it, that. An instinct for like, let me, let me. I know that you're wanna, you're you're thinking you're watching this. I'm going to take that away. I'm going to put this here. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Is something being done better than it needs to be? There's always it, yeah. why people, That's I think like, like when you talk about a cult hit, you're expecting something of it and it delivers far more. And this is Die Hard's coming out at a time when everyone thinks they know what an action movie is. Yeah. And it's coming, there's been a decline in, there's, the first action comedies that come out that really work are things like Butch and Sundance. I'll jump first. No. Nope. Then you jump first. No, I said. What's the matter with you? I can't swim! And they've got these buddy things and there's lots of wisecracking. <laughs> Why are you crazy? The fall will probably kill you. And that, that sort of fading and probably 48 hours and things like that are the, yeah. are the end of that. And that's been taken over by the, the monolithic Superman, Ubermensch. Sly and Arnie are these massive slabs of meat who can do anything. John Rambo, one man who's been pushed too far. And they're like cartoon characters. Leave anything for us? Just bodies. They're unstoppable forces. Survive a war. You gotta become war. You think you know. Well, there's, there's two things it can be. A wisecracking buddy movie, or it can be a Rambo, slab of meat who, who's unstoppable. Macho assholes. No, no! And they found something new. Who is he? Well, he might be a cop. I don't know. We're checking on that. And he's also a beta male. He's nervous, anxious, weak. He's aware. Bruce Willis said he, that they worked out the, the thing was he was in pain from his divorce. And the, the original screenwriter was inspired to write this by having had an argument with his wife and realizing he had to go back and say sorry. It took me a while to figure out uh, what a jerk I've been. That's the motive, to go back and say sorry. That's not an Arnie motive. That's not a Sly Stallone motive. Yeah. When things started to pan out for her, I should have been more supportive. That works really well with a softer character. Yeah. And I think people got overexcited when they finally saw it because it hadn't been done before. Yeah. Tell her that, um, that she is the best thing that ever happened to a bum like me. I, 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 yeah, I'm thinking about that moment with the, with him with, with the glass, getting up, taking the glass out of his foot. All things being equal, I'd rather be in Philadelphia. How really, like, you know, weirdly touching that moment. You're not supposed it's to be. Incredibly You don't really have, like, action movies where you have these moments and you sort of, like, you want to feel for the protagonist, like you're supposed to. I feel like shit anyway. Yeah. You know, you're supposed to feel for... Arnie losing his daughter in Commando, but you don't because no, you know, he's, he's just, Arnie. you know, he's a one-man army, and you know that they're gonna all get it. Fuck you, asshole! Talking about the idea of him as a vulnerable hero and that pulling the glass out the foot, yeah. which has only occurred to me watching it last night, is the version of where you see the 
the bullet being pulled out of the hole in a western. Yeah, yeah, There's always yeah, guys yeah. got a bullet hole and he's yeah. pouring whiskey into it. Yeah. It's a variation on that, but weirdly really visceral because you've watched his bare feet That's right, yeah. all the way through it. And realising that the iconic lone hero in a movie by this point is either an Arnie or a Sly or, poss- or Charlton Heston or Clint Eastwood yeah. or possibly Bond, yeah. your solo guy. And all those people are massively equipped Arnie in Commando is strapping on the yeah. webbing. Or they've got the gadgets and the guns and everything. Smoke screen, oil slick, rear bulletproof screen, and left and right front wing machine guns. And the thing with this movie that it reminded me of was a video game that came afterwards. This is a first person shooter where you start off and you've got no equipment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Bond's got gadgets. This guy's not even got shoes. He's not even dressed. And it's a completely different feeling because he looks vulnerable. You need to be Arnie by this point when he goes to beat the bad guys is strapped everything on. Yeah. And is 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 ripped and greased and capable. And Bricks is in good shape. Yeah. But he's vulnerable. He's yeah. bare feet. He's got nothing. He's using things like he's not got a grappling gun like Bond. No, he's using his gun to like grapple. And the webbing. And, <laughs> and the webbing, yeah. he uses a computer yeah. as a bomb. And yeah, yeah. It's yeah. that thing of like a bear grills yeah. versus survivalist. He's got nothing. And he yeah. starts with nothing. Even down to the fact they're being one of the most famous scenes is now I have a machine gun. Ho, ho, ho. I now have a machine now gun. I, now I have a machine gun. It's yeah. saying, finally, I have something to fight back yeah. with because he started with nothing. Yeah. And that makes him a very different sort of hero. He's not been given loads of the hero's journey. You're supposed to be given lots of gifts from the gods. You're given your sword and your shield. These weapons are gifts from the gods. Before you go on your mission, that's what Q does to Bond. The homing device is compatible with the standard issue radio directional finder in your watch. He starts with nothing. Yeah. Not even shoes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, yeah. You know, no shirt. Um, <laughs> he's so ill-equipped. He's just, yeah. Up against the Armani guys. And again, it's you're right about when he enters and you feel the contrast between him and the world he's entering. Yeah. This is, I find it hilarious. My brother and I always call it millionaire's music. There's a relentless bed of the ba 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 all the way through. The kind of music that's playing in Dandy Dan's place in Bugsy Malone. Yeah. Relentless string quartets. Yeah. He's not part of this. And the guys he's up against are dressed to the nine. That's right, yeah. Suits, shoes, ties. And also, shout out to the guy who plays Ellis. I still don't know. I always, every once in a while, will Google his name. And this is this is <laughs> he's testament. Just Ellis. It's a testament to how good he is. The biggest asshole you've ever seen yes. on screen. <laughs> Personally, I couldn't care less about your politics. Maybe you're pissed off at the camel jockeys. Maybe it's the Heaves, Northern Island. It's none of my business. I figure you're here to negotiate. Am I right? That is the actor playing that. I mean, the guy's not genuinely an asshole. I think he's you know, in he's... a movie with, and I've forgotten the guy's name as well, with the asshole from Ghostbusters, who's playing the, <laughs> the, the, the reporter. Yeah. Monica, I can get us a table. Wolfgang yeah. and I Officer are very close friends. And you forget the reporter asshole. Uh, exactly. Because you remember Ellis. That's right, yeah. And he's, <laughs> I mean, he's, and he's absolutely brilliant. Business is business. You use a gun, I use a fountain pen. What's the difference? That guy becomes president, and that's Trump. <laughs> yeah. That's what I always said. You know, that's, it, Trump is basically Ellis, yeah. who then goes into politics. America's policy is unambiguous to terrorists. I figure you're here to negotiate. Am I right? That's another shout-out to the writing here, where Ellis goes, show them the Rolex. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like a, a symbol of, of who they are. It's a Rolex. And, and, he, and he goes, I'm sure I'll see it later. Uh, you know, which of course ends up being yeah. the thing that uh, Hans Gruber's holding on yes. to. Release the Rolex. And so she releases, the, get, throws the Rolex away, and then he, and that's how you get rid of the. Um, you know, just a lovely bit of. It's a subtle payoff. There. I yeah. think that's a rewrite or a reference to originally. He's supposed to recognise Gruber when Gruber's putting on the Californian accent. He's supposed to recognise him by his Tug Heuer watch. Oh, right. And there was a big scene where they were all setting their their watches uh, in oh, the van, right. and they had to delete that. Because when they wrote the scene in the van, they hadn't written there was supposed to be an ambulance in the van. Oh, that's right. That's and right, if you watch right. now, they come out of the van and there's, and no, there's ambulance no ambulance in the van. And then the ambulance appears. <laughs> yeah, because they were writing it uh, right, a page at right. a time. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they didn't realize they needed an ambulance until the end. But yeah. so again, they're writing on the fly really cleverly. They've removed there's a there's a feeling <laughs> there's a feeling in these movies around this time, because this is around the same time as Robocop, which is another great bad gang movie that yeah. I always really liked. Where there's a mistrust of corporate America. That those guys, the yuppies, who are heroes for a bit, because they they're, they're bringing all the money in and everyone wants to be them. 
we've now turned against them. And the, the regular Joes, this sort of Springsteen-y guy turns up and he doesn't like the Californians. He doesn't like their suits. And the Euro trash are coming in and they're all well suited. And you put, in contrast to him, a guy who rides in the front of the limo with the limo driver. And it's a battle between those two Americas. Yeah. So I'm a New York cop. I got a six-month backlog in New York scumbags. I'm still trying to put behind bars. I can't just pick up and go that easy. There's a real feeling of mistrust of the corporate suits in, in Robocop and in uh, Aliens. It's against the corporate structures, That's which is right, strange because yeah. America, the corporate structure made this film. It's not like it's not made by a very yeah. rich corporation. Yeah. Well, again, I think there's a big part of American foreign policy at play in how America presents itself in its movies. Yeah. And I think, I think this time was indicative of movies not being made with that in mind. Because I think once the sort of 2000s hit, especially, especially after 9-11, yeah. um, I think the industry kind of went, oh, we've got, we got to remember just how important the message is. The soft power thing. Yeah, the, the soft power soft is power. really important here. But I think this particular time in American movie making was just sort of like, what is box office? Yeah. Well, again, what does it mean? What yeah. does the audience want? Yeah. And the audience will be people who feel more Bruce Willis than they do Ellis. Yeah. So you want to see Ellis suffer. You want to see Alan Rickman dropped from a high building because you feel that about your boss, about the guys who took over and closed your car plant yeah, down. Yeah. Again, everyone involved in this is making a movie for the bums on seats in the Midwest. And they're Bruce Willis. Yeah. I suppose this leads eventually to that strange world where you, where Bruce Willis is, is being sent into space in Armageddon to yeah, do a yeah. job that he's ill-qualified for. <laughs> yeah. Train an astronaut to drill. Don't, That's right, yeah, yeah, The yeah, other yeah. way around is insane. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you start to list all the, like, cool little things that exist in the movie, it starts to, get, it starts to build this amazing tapestry. So for the relationship, for example, between uh, Bruce Willis and Reginald... Bell Johnson. Yeah, who plays Al. Al. Yeah, the, the, the cop. Uh, uh, the, you know, strictly radio Yeah, it's a buddy movie where they're at a distance. Chalk up two more bad guys. Well, the boys down here will be glad to hear that. You know we got a pool going on you. What kind of odds am I getting? You don't want to know. Put me down for 20. I'm good for it. Yeah, and, and the villain's at a distance. Yeah. Everything's to the ready. He's on his own. And if you, re- you know, the, the big moment in Die Hard is when they... They see each other outside and they start laughing and then they hug themselves. Like it that. That's actually a massive moment. It when completely you think overwhelms him seeing his wife. Yeah. The idea is he's supposed yeah. to get back with his wife and it bulldozes <laughs> the, the buddy movie overtakes That's it. That's right, it's, yeah. yeah. It's a great bro yeah. moment where you go, kind of, the wife deserves a bit more fuss, but it's yeah. kind of steamrolled over by the moment that the two buddies have been helping each yeah. other. The, the two big moments it's building towards the two big meetings. Meet the bad guy yeah. and meet the guy who's... They've been a Butch and Sundance yeah. all the way through it. I love you. Finally, they get together. Your thing about saying it gives the audience what they want by that point, you kind of don't care about the wife anymore. You don't care about his marriage. Yeah, yeah. You want him to see his buddy. Yeah. Which says something about all of us, I think, that we've enjoyed them so much. Yeah. How is my wife, Holly? Holly Holly McLean. Hello, Holly. You got yourself a good man. The setups in it are all... It's... It, sits him as a hero between these very slick baddies in a world that he doesn't fit in. He's a fish out of water, a corporate world. And then he's also against the establishment. So the police are no use, uh, except for one guy who's basically the the blue collar, the the, the ordinary working (laughs) schlub is with him. But the police, the authorities, he's that classic American hero of the maverick who's not accepted by by any of the institutions. So he needs to always be out of his depth and rejected by all the worlds he's in. And of course, the, the, we should talk about what the skyscraper is. Oh. It's the Fox building. Yeah, on the yeah, Fox, yeah, the Fox lot. Freaking this Fox is, building. As it was being built. Yeah. And they, they got permission to do it because uh, there were lawyers on some of the floors, but not on these floors. Yeah. And then they went up there and saw what's lying around. We'll yeah. improvise with what's, what, what building materials and are there. Fox charged themselves <laughs> rent. It's just a huge corporate scam. Yeah, they had to pay themselves <laughs> money. You know, it's so, I mean, it was so dodge, but... Yeah. Business is business. I suppose what that gives it is a real independent movie feeling in that way you go, well, what have you got? Yeah. Where people will do, I, I'm a teacher, so I'll film in my school. Yeah. It feels like someone has said, that one location movie, which is what people do as very often as the first movie, you've got a warehouse, so you make Reservoir Dogs. That's it. The limitations then become the art. Yeah. But you see, this is, uh, again, I just go back to the skill set. Yeah. Because I love those. If you ever watch 
there's these fascinating side-by-side videos that you can watch on YouTube of um, like a promo or an advert that gets shot for whatever. Two people are given the same equipment with the same brief, sometimes even the same shot set up, depending on which ones you watch. But it'll be like an advert for a trainer. Yeah. And one will be shot by an amateur and one will be shot by a professional. professional. But they're using the same equipment, yeah. same everything, same location, same everything. And it is fascinating because you, you're seeing the same advert, but you can tell just how much better the professional one. The one yeah. who knows what they're doing, whose skill set is higher, just looks perfect. Invisible skill. Of course, John McTiernan and Sousa and all those guys and, and Joe Silver will, will be given two empty floors on, on, a, on an un, as yet unfinished building <laughs> and make one of the biggest blockbusters of all time. Yeah. You know, of course they will. But if I don't, give me two empty floors, I'll fuck it up. Yeah. You know, easily. I'll run out of ideas immediately. Exactly, yeah. Or, or I'll use it too much. Yeah. Because, you know, how many times do you see the floor that's not being used? Once, when he, when he finally gets to the top level and he can't get him, what the fuck did you done, John? I I, I, I get just, this is how I know it's a good movie because now I just want to watch it again. I'm like, I've just seen it. <laughs> You're going to do this with limitations. You're going to do this with the smallest amount of stuff. And it's like watching a great magician do a linking rings trick. You can't make the Statue of Liberty disappear. You've got two links or a pack of cards, the most basic tools of your trade. You've got a small crew. You've got Jan de Bont, the cinematographer who will eventually make speed, die hard on a bus. Yeah. Uh, you've got the best guys in the world to do this, good screenwriters, good actors, everything. And you say, with the minimum amount of stuff, can you make something that is beautiful, like a, like a miniature? Because it's stuck somewhere. And this, this led to a, a genre of, of, of movies like Under Siege, Die Hard on a Boat, Die Hard on a Plane. Die they're, they're all this thing where they go, lock the location. Yep. And it ends up with lovely things like The Raid, which I think is great fun. Yeah. And uh, Dread, the Drudge Dread movie, which is Die Hard yeah. again. Just climb up a building. It's as yeah. simple as that. Climb a building. Yeah. The limitations are not limitations. They're saying, here's a palette of colours. Can you do something with three colours? Not a hundred colours. That's three. right. Yeah. Always looks better. Well, is that great uh, director's tip when an actor is struggling to know what they're doing or struggling with their motivation is to limit things like their movement or oh. their path? Well, like if it's on stage, for example. Yeah. Is to provide a constraint, a physical constraint yeah. to what they're doing on multiple levels. So you are only allowed to walk on this straight three feet in front of you and then a 90 degree a turn to the, to, you know, in, a, in an L shape across the, sp- yeah. the space. That is the, you're only allowed to walk there and you, and you can't sit down and you have to have this coffee mug in your hand and you have to have your left hand in your pocket and you're not allowed to move. And once you do that, the yeah. actor starts to come up with all these amazing ideas wow. internally for their motivation. And so, and so it's a good trick for actors to do as well. Well, the paralysis of choice. I and mean, we've said this before yeah. on this podcast a lot, saying that what we're admiring a lot, and especially in movies you watch again and again, and films and TV and, and books that you can go back to, is craft. And the craft of it very often is just decisions. What decisions have been made? And one of the best things you can do is to limit those decisions. Yeah. When you start on a project, I find this as writing, the blank page is a nightmare because oh, anything can happen. Horrible. The moment you start saying, okay, we've got two people there in a car, suddenly it's an easier job. You'd think it would be harder. One of the worst things you can ever be told is, oh, just enjoy yourself. No, no, tell no, me. No, tell me what to tell fucking me do. What time of day it is. Because yeah. all those things are a decision that you then don't have to make. Yeah. It's been taken out of your hands. To say you can only move in an L shape across yeah. the stage, one less thing to worry about. So I'll focus on my line delivery. That's right. Taking decisions out of your hands, saying that, this film is entirely set in the front seat of a car or in a building or in a bunker yeah. or three guys are on a ship and they're, they're looking for a, a shark yeah. and they're just going to talk. Yeah. Well, that's a better film than the yeah. three guys can be anywhere. Who are they? doesn't matter. You've made some decisions and very often the director or the budget has made a decision for you that you but, can't go to anywhere. That's right, yeah. For me, uh, what, I, what I need as an actor is a very solid frame within which to yeah. play. And my freedom comes within discipline. Freedom through discipline is kind of how I live my life anyway. Uh, yeah. Rigid sort of program to my day. And then within it, I can feel relaxed and free. And when I don't do my, you know, three, four, five things that I do daily without fail, I don't have my frame uh, in my day. And Very true. Stanislavski in his book talks about there's a little a section that everybody glosses over and nobody remembers this, <laughs> which is insane to me. But it's a story when he talks about 
uh, being um, uh, uh, going on holiday and staying at a summer his summer house and this walk he had to commute every day for something he was doing and the walk from the summer house to the station or to where he caught the bus um, there was a long way around and there was a shortcut through the forest and in the beginning of the summer as he was making the shortcut through the forest he always he felt trepidatious worried nervous yeah. unsure of himself internally shaky as he was making his way through yeah and by the end of the summer he had trod a well-worn path through it and he was skipping having yeah. fun whistling um and so it was that's that's the sort of inspiration for his idea that you need to give yourself rules within which to play so that you can then feel free enough to play that's brilliant yeah and i think maybe that you know who knows maybe that's because i know they've, they've got this novel that they've been handed for to make die hard and maybe the Sousa's going right well we've got this amazing wide-ranging epic story but it's got to be shot in these two things so how do we make it fit into this story and as soon as you go it has to take place over these two floors and we only have these two floors to shoot it on then it's like okay well then we need to drive him from the airport we need to see him in the lobby we need to have a couple yeah. scenes in the lobby we need to you need to you find a way of linking those two floors to a story in a way that's really interesting you're amazing you figured this all out already when you look at art that's been done with huge restrictions for budget or deliberate ones they've just said we're just going to set it in it's just two characters yeah, you just yeah. set in a room weirdly that feels very it feels to me i always feel safe there because it feels like the same decisions you make when if you're doing graphic design where someone says it can only be two colors it always looks better when it's two colors if you put all the if you ever worked in advertising <laughs> yeah. you get a client comes in want all this in it you go, no right. you don't you want two things that's right choose yeah. one font choose one, one color. It. it always looks more stylish it's more controlled and then you see the version of what happens usually by the fourth or fifth film when the budget has sprawled, there's more executive producers. Oh. They want more characters in. And you went, you need one sidekick or that's two right. sidekicks. That's why they call a sidekick. So you need one or two guys yeah. there. The moment you're servicing five or six of them, and I don't know why they're in there, because every draft you added a new one in and there was something in there that someone liked. What you want to say at that point is you need less. Or someone who said, we can't afford this. Yeah. Or the limitations of this. Because then you get creative. Yeah. Otherwise, when you sit through those films in which anything was possible, you're bored. Yeah. Because they've got no focus. And you sit through Die Hard, the thing that becomes really clear about it is it's about one man. He's not allowed to meet the bad guy. He's not allowed to meet his sidekick. He's on his own. The engineering they had to do to make him meet Hans Gruber, yeah. which is a wonderful, uh, one of the awesome. best bits of writing awesome. in there with, where he thinks he's a That's right. hostage. Hi there. How you doing? Please, God, no. You're one of them, aren't you? You're one of them. No, no, don't kill me, please, no, please. Don't kill me, don't kill me, please, please, Whoa, please, whoa, please, whoa, relax. Please. Relax, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not going to hurt you. A beautiful bit of thriller writing. To engineer that, every limitation has made it stronger. And when you watch it, you go, I'm in safe hands. Because then all the decisions are on the level of the lines or the performance or whatever. You're watching something that's on very tight rails. Yeah. But it's not restricted. Yeah. Even if he's in a vent. He's as restricted as he can be. How bad's that shot? Just yeah, 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 yeah. You're enjoying his performance. Yeah. And he's stuck in a vent. Yeah. I know what a TV dinner feels like. I think, and I think Die Hard as a franchise is a perfect example of how that loses control. Oh, it goes, it goes buck nutty. <laughs> the more you insane. can do. The more, yeah, it just, it just becomes, as a franchise, it just goes downhill because it becomes bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. I always call it, I feel it's like draft bloat. As in you've had time to write more and more versions and you want to keep all the best bits in that you liked. And the only answer is you've got to throw those bits yeah, out. You've well, got to you just see, keep the minimum amount in. This only just occurred to me. They've got this written on the fly, scrambly script, but that path through the woods has been worn down. because the they novel. Know, They've got the novel. And also the they know the limitations yeah. are. They can't suddenly go to yeah. Honolulu. That, that, exactly So right. the point is, if he does write something on the fly... He's only got three or four it's colours in his palette. A frame. It's never going to not fit. It's always going to be in a lovely exactly. purple and blue. Here are the limitations for it. And uh, the, these satisfying, rewatchable films very often have a rigid colour palette. So they're comforting to go back to. Everything about it is tasteful. Yeah. And for a film as vulgar as this, really tasteful. Yeah, yeah. The number of times you cut away where you could see blood, gore, really over the top things. Have you ever seen uh, Stallone's Cobra? That's a film which they show all the violence, and it's just nonsense. It doesn't work. It's That's awful. Right. This, the number of times they cut away and you see blood hitting a glass. Yeah. Or the visceral nature of every time that Bruce Willis's feet 
leave a trail of blood or on the windows. Yeah. There's there's a tastefulness even to the gore. That's right. The number of times that a gunshot is out of shot, they shoot someone and you see Bruce Willis's reaction you see to the it reaction, yeah. In the next room. It's really tasteful yeah. for a vulgar action yeah, movie. Yeah. And uh, and uh, things, you know, I know that the bits where they he's pulling the glass out of his foot. There was a sound effect there, there <laughs> which uh, that folded in, which the producers took out because they knew it was just gratuitous and too much. There's a story that when, when they shoot Takagi, they did do the full prosthetic for his brains blowing out, but just so that the censors would take that out to have something right, to take out right, so right. they could keep the rest in. Right, right, it right. was a hostage to fortune. Amazing. So an elaborate squib build just Amazing. to go, we're gonna li- we know we're going to lose that. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. Get on the jet to Tokyo now as the chairman. I'm telling you, you're just going to have to kill me. Okay. You talk about entertainment value, and some of that is going to come down to the fact that everything in this is funny. Yeah. But at the same time as being funny, everything is also thrilling. It never switches between the two modes. Everything is simultaneously exciting and funny. Yeah. I think of Home Alone. Yeah. Which is ostensibly a young adult kids uh, family fun movie with a really serious, scary element in the sort of like Joe Pesci <laughs> yeah. robbing people. I think of Kindergarten Cop. This era of movie making manages to blend genres and themes, conflicting themes, in a way that makes it really palatable. Yeah, if this is very different than something like The Taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3 or something. Correct. Yeah. You're a great action thriller. This is previously what an action thriller was. And again, I suppose it's that Butch and Sundance sets the mode of saying it can be funny and witty and enjoyable as well. But the keynote is everything must be entertaining yeah so if you want to watch something absolutely horrific i mean this ends with the as gruber falls to his death well i hope that's not a hostage it's almost one of the last lines there's a gag yeah 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 (laughs) like yeah everything has got a gag pinned onto it but none of the gags overbalance the action and that when you even bring in a a comic relief character like al powell could be a comic relief character he's not argyle could be funny he could be he could be just sitting there for for laughs and everything. He ends up being you know integral to the story. Yeah, yeah. there's no cutaway to a clown, and maybe that's because Bruce Willis came from a, a, a sort of sitcom. Yeah, they're giving him the wacky lines and things yeah. like that. So he's carrying some comic weight already. So you don't need to cut away from him to get your laughs. Yeah, it can be integrated, and that all seems to be part of John McTiernan and Joel Silver's desire to make sure. You're never not entertained. I, I feel like I need to proselytize this. Life is hard. It's always, you know, this is not new. Life, <laughs> life, is, life is fucking hard. Bills are fucking expensive. They've always been expensive. Yeah. The rate of pay is wildly out of sync with the, the increase in prices. It always has been. People are always struggling. So if you're going to choose to watch something, especially today, yeah. Today's day and age, where there is so much choice, there is so much choice that the rules have changed uh, of, of sort of how to analyze movies and yeah. viewing figures and all this shit. But if you, if you are going to watch my work, as this is how I think of it as a performer, I'm on set. Who is my boss? What am I, who am I actually working for? The, the illusion is that I'm working for my director or, or the producer or the show or the team or even for myself and my own career. The truth is my boss is... Some schmuck sitting at home after a long day's work (laughs) who's flicking through the the channels and who decides, either going to Netflix or any of the other streamers or on on television if it's a television series or even even at the cinema, if they decide to go to the cinema and spend their hard-earned money, what are they going to see? If they choose something that I've done, that is sacred. It's fucking sacred because life is fucking hard. Everything's expensive. Time is short. So if you're going to choose my work, I'm going to, I'm really, really going to make sure that you're going to get as much out of it as possible because you're the boss. Yeah. And so when I think of movies like Die Hard, it's the same thing. They are, they are made with the viewer in mind. Yes. Totally. Not the sponsor, the viewing figures, the previous numbers, uh, the corporation's uh, aims and goals, uh, U.S. foreign policy, uh, blah, 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 U.S. military funding half the, you know, half the budget, and therefore <laughs> they've got to angle things in this direction. These are different constraints. These are different goals in mind when creating movies today. But back, a movie like this focuses on one single subject, and that's you, the viewer, and what are you getting out of it? And so you have... The Jokers 
look like heroes and the heroes look like jokers, you know? Like Johnson and Johnson, the FBI yeah, yeah. agents coming in. I mean, that's a, that's a little comedy double act, you know what I mean? Just like fucking Saigon. I was in junior high, dickhead. Yeah. And it's doing it all knowing that its audience is out there and its audience is clever and its audience knows other stuff. Just another American who saw too many movies as a child. Another orphan of a bankrupt culture who thinks he's John Wayne, Rambo, Marshall Dillon. There's a wonderful story about when they showed the trailer for Die Hard in the cinema, it got booed because people were fed up with Bruce Willis at the time. It, and they right, had to yeah. go, oh God, we've misjudged our audience. Our audience um, don't like this guy to the point they took him off the poster. Yeah. Because at the time he he just, I think- just they, moonlight, It was just moonlighting. He'd done moonlighting, but he just, they'd done the will they won't they and they'd shagged. So everyone was annoyed with him. Right, and yeah, then he yeah. just released Return of Bruno, his album that everyone hated yeah. him for. Someone may have said, well, that's just the way the shit goes down in Hollywood. <laughs> and he made some racket being a noisy neighbour. Yeah. Loads of bad press. So it comes out and they go, we're going to do this thing that's going to delight you. And they put the film out there and it gets booed and they just lose their shit because they go, the whole point yeah. of this film is you're supposed to be thoroughly delighted. Yeah, we right. got the guy from Moonlighting. Oh shit, it's all gone wrong. They panic, remove him from the poster, leave the building on the poster as if the building's the star starring a building. <laughs> yeah. So Fox Plaza in a new action movie. And then they show the rough cut and it gets 96, 97% approval rating. Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. And they just all go... Quick, get this out to as yeah. many screens as possible. But it's completely yeah. in the service of the audience. Yeah. They would pull this film if no one wanted it. Totally. I've said this before about stuff that, that kids get. There's a real pleasure in being given something that's been made for you that's better than you expected. As a yeah. kid, you love getting a good present or a book. Kids are used to getting shit and you get a beautiful book or a lovely kids TV series with more jokes than you're expecting. And it's a treat. It's like a Christmas present. That's right. I don't think that ever leaves you. No. I think as a grown-up, your interaction movies, you're used to getting a lot of shit. Yeah. And when someone gives you a really good one. Exactly. And like, and yeah. you've heard people talking about it. It's like, all right, cool, I'll start watching it. And you're like, this is fucking amazing. They made it for me. <laughs> they made it for me. Oh, God, it's really funny. And it's really dramatic. I thought we'd done you one of those exactly. things. Yeah. And, and maybe that's a key thing. One of the real delights in a comedy action movie or an action movie that's funny is that you were only expecting one of those things. And when they give you both, you go, oh... Yeah. Oh, God, it's the most delicious meal I've ever had. It's got all the flavor. Yeah. It feels like you've been treated. It feels like a treat. And I think the memory of being treated well stays with you. Yeah. So next time you watch it, you go, I remember feeling pretty good when I saw this. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And you, and you, can, and you, and you can keep doing it again and again and again. And I think you just feel, I think the, the sort of, I think if it's done really, really well, if it's iconic, like if it's historically brilliant. There are so many elements of it that play that you, you're constantly getting new information, you know, and, and you know, if you, look, you know anything about information theory, the sort of tension uh, rises with new information. The more new information, the higher the tension. Uh, the less new information, the less tension. And I think it's indicative of really great movies that the tension still stays there, even though you've seen the movie a hundred times. Yeah. You're still watching it with a, with a degree of tension. Yeah. Because new information is still coming. It happens a lot on this podcast. You're invited to look again at something which you're really familiar with. And you put a different bit of your brain on going, I'm probably going to talk about this tomorrow yeah. or later on today. And you watch it differently. And you take in that information differently. Yeah. And the joy comes in. Did you spot? Did you see that thing? That's and there's right. more. And that comes because the people who made it put more in it than you could possibly ever That's give right. out. That's right, yeah. There's a generosity to it. And I suppose, yeah, what you're talking about with, with Die Hard is you were expecting it to be okay. Yeah. We expect it to be all right. And it turns out to be amazing. Yeah. I think I remember when I was, when I was younger, uh, my mum's friend gave, donated a sort of box full of videotapes. It was just random movies. And every, we were just one at a time, just going through them. Don't know what you're going to expect. Don't know what, you, don't know what it's going to be. And it's some, some movie. And then all of a sudden you land on some yeah. amazing gem that's like, you know, one well, of the best movies. That comes from, this comes from a time when people were sort of renting stuff blind in video shops. Yeah. Oh yeah. The VHS I did it all the era. When something is a treat like this, you do remember the excitement that came with that. Yeah. And there's a thrill baked into this in that it's made on the fly, in a hurry. It could have gone wrong. Loads of decisions are made right to the end, to the point where they're getting the trailer booed. Yeah. They could have really backed the wrong horse. This could be an absolute disaster. There's a thrill and an excitement of them getting away with a heist. They are yeah. the bank robbers. They, yeah. they, they've got into the building. 
what can we do in the building? We've only got 35 pages of script. <laughs> yeah. They're improvising. They're, that excitement's baked into it. And then you get the excitement of unwrapping that gift. That's it. Yeah. Bunging it into the video player. What's it going to be? And you know, if you, do, if you get Picasso in the room and you say, look, I'm, we've only got two colours to paint with here. <laughs> You've got Picasso and Monet sitting together <laughs> and you're like, we have, we have hardly any time. There's no budget, but I've got these two bits of paint here. Can you do something? You know it's going to be interesting. <laughs> I'm going to count to three. Yeah. Like you did with Takagi. Oops. No bullets. You think I'm fucking stupid, Hans? You're saying? You're making yourself in a hurry and you're making it. The only way to get away with it is to be really, really good at your job. And then what you're watching, I suppose, is is a demonstration of skill. Yeah. Against the odds. And it's exciting. So yeah. So you're talking about tension and excitement. And that's what you're meant to get from an action movie. And I suppose when it gets bloated, when you've got all the budget in the world and all the locations in the world, you lose that tension. Yeah. And you lose and you get to, and you get lots of competing minds and competing goals. And I, and I still maintain the boss, the quote unquote boss changes. Yeah. As soon as it stops being one person, is it my friend Sarah, uh, Sarah Sloboda, fantastic artist in America, when I was struggling a long time ago, and I just said, look, I feel a bit aimless, you know, and I've do- I'm doing, I'm doing theater, after, theater gig after theater gig, which is a luxury, but it was, it was numbing me. Yeah. Um, and I said, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to figure out my place and like what's actually, I think the tsunami had just happened uh, on that, the New Year's uh, tsunami. Uh, 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 and, uh, and I just thought if I had spent my life building, you know, water fortifications, I could have actually done something to yeah. help. And I'm a fucking actor. What, what am I actually doing uh, for the world? And she was just saying, yeah, I think you, your boss has become too diverse. Um, who are you actually doing it for? What's, what do they look yeah. like? What's the face of the person that you're performing for? And I think any artist will, can benefit from that to, to just sort of narrow down what the face looks like of the person you do your job for. Uh, what are they looking at you trying to get? It can be that specific. Yeah. You're like I'm doing this for the person watching me who is going through this particular set of circumstances at this point in time and who needs to see this X, Y, and Z. And that's who I'm doing it for. And as soon as you narrow that focus, yeah. it becomes, you, you know, you actually have a purpose. And I think that's what this movie is. Everybody's doing it with a purpose. They know who they're making it for. To the extent that the answer could be they're making it for someone who doesn't want a drug addict daughter to fall out of a building it, yeah. and they want the building to explode. Yeah. I promise I'll never even think about going up in a tall building again. Oh, God. Please don't let me die. That might sound like it's a funny thing, yeah. but knowing that creates art. That's because it. they know exactly who they're making it for, and there's no they've made no mistakes. That's it, yeah. And that person was you. Yeah, yeah. And you've remained delighted because they gave you a present with your name on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What a lovely thought. What a yeah. brilliant place to end. Thanks so much. It's Thank you, brilliant. dude. Thank you. Comfort Blanket was presented and produced by Joel Morris the cheese and pickle family of podcasts find us on social media and don't forget to like and subscribe